1: Hello, you're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, sitting in for Matt Chorley on this Bank Holiday Monday. We've got a great episode for you today, if I do say so myself. Of course, we've been talking a lot about the next Prime Minister. Who's going to win the Tory leadership race? Who's going to be in their cabinet? And will that really include John Redwood? But what about the loser? I took a look at history's political losers and what Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss might learn from them once we know the result as they're banished to the backbenches. Lots to learn there, but if it's ever we have our columnist panel first today is Libby Purvis and Rachel Cundler The Columnists on Times Radio but now it's time for our favourite part of the show our all-star columnist panel it's time to talk to some of the best names in the business and today we have Libby Purvis from the Times morning Libby morning and Rachel Cundler from the New Statesman morning Rachel good morning how are you both doing this morning how are you doing Libby
2: Oh, I've just been doing the cat's worm medicine, so so um, yes. it's it's better better to be doing this and, frankly.
1: And they told you Fleet Street would be all glamour, Libby. <laughs> and Rachel, how's your bank holding been so far?
3: Well, my cat just tried to eat the phone that I'm using to record this. So.
1: <laughs> uh, do, you, do, oh, Very... do we just want to make this some sort of feline counselling session?
3: I think so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! Um. Right, let's get into it, shall we? Uh we could talk about cats all morning, I'm sure. I'm not a cat fan, so I'll um I'll uh you know keep my keep my opinions to myself to you know to to prevent myself from upsetting you. Let's instead talk, Rachel, about the column you've picked out this morning. Not one of yours, but from Charlotte Ivers in the Sunday Times yesterday. Uh, are we failing the young in this country? I saw this uh this column got a lot of love on Twitter. Uh Charlotte Ivers, uh a similar age to me, actually. Talking about how lots of 20 somethings are looking at Britain dysfunctional in their view and concluding that they shouldn't do the conventional thing of working hard, saving to buy a house, uh, you know, climbing the professional sort of uh, greasy pole because the rewards that were there for previous generations in Charlotte's view aren't there anymore. Hello, Rachel.
3: Oh hello, yes. Um, it's not. It's not just in her her view. Uh, it's a uh, it, it, it's a trend that's kind of been widely written about. But uh, when people do write about it, the response is oh, entitled young people who want to be handed everything. Um, and then you look at the the numbers and quite how stark the situation she's sort of describing is. The idea that you can be uh, earning a comparatively a really high salary. So you know um, over. 40,000, over 50,000, you can be a couple earning that. And your chance of being able to buy a house, start a family, kind of grow up in that sense, has been completely decimated. So kind of what's the point? And if you've got lots of professionals in in sectors like banking or law, or even the civil service, who are going, yeah, I could work really hard, but I'm never going to be able to achieve those things because the housing market's completely broken. Uh, my student loan repayments mean that I'm paying a marginal tax rate of over 50%. Uh, childcare in this country is outrageously expensive. Um, so basically, what's the point? And you check out of the system, uh, it, 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 it doesn't really bode well. Now, I imagine there's not going to be much sympathy for this for people outside of that generation. But what I would say is if even that class of, of kind of middle-class professionals are feeling this despondent about the state of the country, it doesn't really inspire much hope about where we could be going forward.
1: Well, Libby, do you sympathise with the case that young people are getting a raw deal from uh, from politics and uh, and the economy in Britain today, or should they stop moaning?
2: I absolutely sympathise with what Charlotte says, and what I love is the fact that we're starting to get young writers, columnists from Something seen as the right, you know, something seen as not the lefty. Wing media pointing this out and saying this and what is fascinating is the idea that the conservatives think they can ever win an election again with these young voters i mean we have had a decade and more of conservative government it hasn't fixed the nhs hasn't fixed a broken house market power security hasn't leveled up deprived areas look at ed lucas this morning we are still you know uh, an absolute haven for dirty foreign money uh, from dodgy regimes and dodgy people and their dodgy lawyers it's absolutely filthy even if even conservative commentators are fed up and starting to call for things like renationalising energy, as they are on the front of the paper today, who wouldn't vote for change? And I think the idea that politicians have simply failed to see this and think they can carry on with the Boris style and Liz Truss style boosterism of this is a wonderful country and we are proud to be here and not look around them and see how things are, especially for the rising generation and especially regarding the housing market and our enormous gap. As see Edward Lucas again this morning, enormous gap of wealth and income. You know, so many families have absolutely no savings or tiny little savings and are going to be hit hard this winter. There has to be some kind of change. And I'm I'm very encouraged that the young of the middle class and potentially right wing are starting to say, oi, this won't do.
1: Rachel, what, what do you think, you know, Liz Truss uh, will be or, or Rishi up when they arrive in number 10? On Monday, what can they do? You know, they'll be reading columns like Charlotte's. They'll be reading columns like Robert Colville's in the Sunday Times. As yesterday, he he made a, a very similar argument, uh, talking about how actually, if you look at the economic privileges um, and the, uh, the you know the marginal tax rates a worker who's 60 will enjoy compared to a worker on the same salary who's 25. You know, the numbers speak for themselves. What are they? What are the think What could they do on day one to, you know, win over? commentators like charlotte and robert or you know just just to address this problem what are the practical constructive things that they can do
3: the number one thing that would help, it wouldn't fix everything that would help, would be liberalising the planning system and building more houses, building on brownfield, building family homes, flats, uh, satellite cities, cities around, sort of rethinking about the green belt land, which is not always lovely green rolling fields. A lot of it is kind of disused car parks and brownfield sites that have been designated green, um, and just making sure that those projects actually happen. The issue is, I don't think either of them, either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, will, will do that because we've had 12 years of of conservative politicians who actually do believe ideologically that it would be great if we had more housing, but then sort of come up against acute NIMBYism. Well, when Boris they Johnson tried, I tried I to do
1: it, of course, and it was he, he
3: tried it and there was there was sort of widespread opposition to it. And I think this is articulated beautifully, sorry to single her out, but by the MP Maria Caulfield, who is a conservative uh, junior minister, who will happily tweet pictures of herself in fields saying, I'm so excited, I, I helped block this initiative, this horrible initiative oh. that would have enabled uh, you know all of these families families to have homes on this lovely, 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 dirty green field that isn't being used for everything. Um, she's also done it as well with a, a solar farm, not like we're in an energy crisis or anything. And I think as long as that's possible, as long as local residents have the power to put that much pressure on their MPs, nimbyism to, to block things and to say, well, we, we're, we're quite happy with our houses now, so we don't actually want anyone else living near us. As long as they have that power, nothing is going to get built. So I think we should actually reframe house building as something patriotic. If you really love your country and you really believe in the future of Britain and productivity and growth and the next generation having the opportunities that you did, maybe sacrifice a tiny bit of your view so that a young family can, can get a home. Otherwise, you're not really patriotic at all. I'm sorry, you're just selfish.
1: What do you reckon, Libby?
2: Hmm. Well, and tax. Can I just say, I mean, I agree with a lot of that, but I will also say, and tax. Basically, uh, the, the the triple lock on pensions, certainly for the most affluent, is not appropriate. Uh, I draw my pension now simply because it is a way of giving quite a lot of it away and forcing the government to give 25% gift aid on top of it. Um, it's absurd. Uh, we we need we need higher taxes on the richest, on the most affluent, and um, the idea that they'll all sort of flee over overseas. I mean, most just can't, you know, because their work and lives are here. No, we, we need we need a massive, massive levelling up, and um, the, this doesn't have to be sort of Corbynite socialism. But there's absolutely the, the blindness of the Conservative Party the last 12 years to this has been astonishing, and Tony Blair didn't do that much good before
1: either. Uh, Rachel do you think do you have any faith when you look at both contenders that they are alive to these challenges or or, you know it's interesting what you just said you know Tory MPs who know deep down ideologically that all the answers to these questions are at their fingertips but they are they don't have the incentive to do it they're pitching towards a, a Tory membership that's older and lives in the shires perhaps you know They're never going to be rewarded, particularly at this stage in the race. You know, who knows what they'll do when they get into office, whether they'll, uh, you know, tack towards these constructive solutions. But they're never going to be rewarded in in moments like these, are they, for saying unpopular things to their their membership?
3: No, I think they have this very clear idea that uh, older people vote and they are more likely to vote Conservative and they are so panicked about whether or not they'll win the next election, that that's what they're focusing on. And I think there's this mythology in the Conservative Party, that people naturally become more conservative, more likely to vote Tory as they get older. So it doesn't matter if young people today don't support them, because, you know, eventually, they'll get older, and and they will. And I think what's missing from that analysis is if you deny people the opportunities of adulthood, of owning a home, of starting a family, of putting down roots, of not spending 50% of your income, renting a room in a dodgy house share, um, if you don't give people that chance that sort of transition why would they vote for you so I think the next election they'll probably be okay because of the way the age demographics work but not to put too too not to sound too harsh but eventually those older voters are not going to be voting anymore and they are not being replaced at the moment and I think that's an existential challenge for the Tory party.
2: Well, hang on as an older voter can i just can i just actually weigh in here i am 72 years old and i am as furious as anybody and <laughs> so are a great mass of my friends and people of my own age we we can see the problem we can see what's wrong we actually we 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 absolutely agree with this um the idea that you know there's these older people who are all conservative voters is just nonsense and i hope that an awful lot of them are going to give a seriously bloody nose to the party at the next election you know i don't know whether labor will be a good government or not but if the conservatives really deserve something it is a big slap from my generation
1: is the problem not broader than the conservatives is it not a problem rachel with our political culture more generally that not terribly good at thinking about things in the long term because long term, be it infrastructure projects, be it um, big structural changes to how this country works, tend to involve a bit of pain and they are unpopular. So no government, unless they have a massive majority, is able to make these structural changes. And Even when Boris Johnson won his landslide in 2019, he couldn't do stuff like planning reform because Tory MPs kicked up a massive fuss and all the promise of that 80-seat majority for big structural lasting change very, very quickly evaporated.
3: I think there definitely is some of that, Um, not just with the Conservatives either. There's that video of, I think, uh, Ed Davey when he was in the coalition government with Cameron and and Nick Clegg, both talking about how they weren't going to authorise sort of extra fracking sites and nuclear power stations and things back in 2012 that would have helped secure Britain's uh, national energy security in 10 years' time. Well, 10 years' time is now. If they'd made those decisions now, okay, they still wouldn't be in government, but we also wouldn't be facing the energy crisis that we are at the moment. So I think there is sort of an issue with thinking long term and strategically. And that is kind of across the political spectrum, uh, all parties, all governments, countries that do it well, that are good at building long term infrastructure projects often have uh, another mechanism, another institution of of government that's a bit more long-term, sort of citizens' assemblies or some kind of institution that is set up in order to have a a long-term political goal. And that is what pushes it through, not the politicians who are elected day to day, because they are always going to be thinking in four or five-year cycles, not in 10 years, 20 years. And I think one of the reasons we are in such a wretched position looking into this, this autumn and winter is because of a failure to make decisions that seemed politically unpopular a decade ago, but actually in in hindsight of absolutely what we should have done.
1: Do you agree, Libya? are politicians too quick to kick cans down the road?
2: Absolutely, always, always have been, but all the same... Uh, there is a responsibility on them. These are responsible jobs. They have to look at the long term. Sometimes they have to give up a bit of cheap popularity for long term uh, thinking. And it has happened at times in the past history. It should be happening again. I have more faith in, if I have faith in any of them, I have more faith in Sunak than I do in Liz Truss because he has shown in all the things he's said that he is willing to look more widely and further ahead and do the hard sums better than she is. Uh, But he's not going to win, is he?
1: That was Rachel Cunliffe and Libby Purvis going head-to-head on the issue of intergenerational fairness. Fascinating discussion there. You can read Libby in the Times, of course, just get yourself a subscription. Up next, we're talking losers in British politics.
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing. Times Radio. Yes, this time next week we'll at last have learned the outcome of the Tory leadership race. And if the polls and Conservative MPs are to be believed, Liz Truss is going to be the one who's on her way to meet the Queen. But what's going to happen to Rishi Sunak or indeed Liz Truss if the polls are wrong? And the opposite result is the one we get next Monday. Humbled by their colleagues, will they be on their way to the cabinet in a junior role or a senior role? Will they be going to the back benches or will they be leaving politics altogether? Will Rishi Sunak be heading back to the beaches of Santa Monica? Well, last week, Rishi Sunak, the man who it's widely assumed will not be winning this leadership election, told the BBC that despite rumours to the contrary, he plans to stay put. No, absolutely not. Of course not. And I, and I, and, uh, I, I would dispute the, the, the characterization, right? I'm working incredibly hard going around the country talking about my ideas for the future and actually having a very positive reception where I'm going. And I think there's everything left to play for. Uh, there's still weeks to run in this campaign. And that's why I'm continuing to give it everything I've got. Well, history, of course, is written by the victors, unless uh, you're answering the trivia question on this show. Those who run for the top job and then lose are sometimes forgotten, uh, shafted by posterity. Others, however, end up leaving just as big a mark on their parties and politics at Westminster as the politicians who beat them. So today, as Sunak and his supporters contemplate their future in government, out of government or out of politics altogether, we're asking what kind of a loser he might be, what kind of a loser Liz Truss might be and how others in Westminster over the past six decades have shown that missing out in a leadership election need not be the end. Now, joining me to talk through all of this is a man who's seen most of the people we're going to be talking about in action up close, Phil Webster, former political editor of The Times. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Uh, now, let's start back in the 1960s, which uh, is uh, is just before your working career as a journalist, Phil, but some of the players did uh, did stick around after that. We'll, we'll start with the very, very first contested Tory leadership election 1965 Ted Heath won Reggie Maudling came second and in a very very distant third was a maverick former minister by the name of Enoch Powell if he if he thought that result was going to Assert his authority over Powell. He was very much mistaken. Over the next decade, the pair became bitter, bitter rivals. And Powell seized every opportunity to undermine and destabilise his leader and prime minister. Most notably, of course, when he gave that infamous rivers of blood speech in 1968. He sacked him for that.
5: I dismissed Mr Powell from the shadow cabinet because I believed that his speech was inflammatory and liable to damage race relations in this country. I am determined to do everything I can to prevent racial problems developing into civil strife. And this means that these questions must be
1: treated with moderation and with toleration. Here's Margaret Thatcher on why she thought it exploded in the way that it did.
2: I remember Ted ringing me up on Sunday morning, because it was all over the Sunday papers, saying Enoch must go. And I said, look, I really, I would just wait and just read the whole speech and just uh, think about it for a few days. No, no, he must go. Everyone says he must go. And I gathered later there would have been resignations from Shadow Cabinet if Enoch hadn't gone. I thought it was a conclusion jumped to far too rapidly if you looked at the logic and reason in his speech.
1: He was also a thorn in Ted Heath's side over Europe, so much so that he ended up endorsing the Labour Party in
5: 1974. Judas was paid. Judas was paid. I am making
2: a sacrifice.
1: Yes, that was Enoch Powell endorsing Harold Wilson's Labour because they, unlike Ted Heath, were offering a referendum on Europe. Phil, Enoch Powell was the archetypal rebel, wasn't he? You know, never got the top job himself, so he took the nuclear option of rather than lose and having to serve in the cabinet of a um, leader he thought was wrong about basically everything, he became a, a serial malcontent on the backbenches, sowing discord and, and, uh, and you know, taking that nuclear option and, and, and rebelling on every, every big question, didn't he?
5: Yeah, his was one of the sort of saddest departures in the sense that a, a top-line politician was taken, really took himself off the scene for so long. Um, and, of course, the, the the 1968 speech, although very controversial, was quite popular in the country at the time, and it was popular with quite a lot of his colleagues. Powell really believed that he should have the top job, uh, and there was an element of calculation in making that speech. Of course, he didn't get it. He got sacked. And then... Uh, advising voters to go for Labour was the ultimate sin, and, and certainly Margaret Thatcher would not have been able to support him any longer after that. He then, of course, he um, he advised people to to vote Labour. Some people think he was a uh, that might even have been a factor in Labour's victory, uh, very narrow victory in February '74, mm. and then in the October '74 election, there was Powell standing for the Ulster Unionists, he'd completely gone from the Tory party. He ended up really making good speeches um, from the back benches for another 13 years after that, before he finally went. Um, but really a
1: wasted career. But precisely because he was so unwilling to brook any compromise with his own uh, quite idiosyncratic uh, principles, wasn't he? And across the floor, uh, another Eurosceptic, Tony Benn, played much the same role... In the Labour Party, you know, under Harold Wilson, he'd been a technocratic modernising minister behind the post office tower and Concord. But by the time he loses in 1976 in that leadership election Jim Callaghan won, he was veering left and, as far as his colleagues were concerned, veering off the reservation. Here's Roy Hattersley on his uh, evolution as a politician. A number of factors made it possible for demagogues, by demagogues I principally mean Tony Benn, to say this is what is wrong with Labour Party, your leaders betray you, your leaders are really Tories in disguise, policy is never genuine socialism, it's always capitalism dressed up to look like something different. The Labour Party for two or three years wasn't an opposition at all. It was an opposition to itself, there was an internal opposition. Uh, There was a civil war in the very real sense of that terms. And here's another lifelong rebel, or rather a... um, you know, somewhat an apostate almost, Phil, who goes from being a, a, a minister of the top rank, uh, perhaps more senior than Enoch Powell was as a, as a minister, and becoming a, a, a rabble-rouser, or a demagogue, as Roy Hattersley put it, and opposing the leadership of his own party every turn.
5: Yeah, I mean, Ben was a great parliamentarian and he had almost 50 years in the House of Commons, but he too wanted to be leader and thought he should be leader, and he realised his only way a becoming leader, was on the back of the the left. Mm. So, yes, he lost in 76, but uh, probably even more famously, he lost in 1981 when he stood up against uh, Dennis Healy for the deputy leadership election. And Healy beat him narrowly. Had Ben won that election, uh, politics would have been a lot different, I think. He would then have been in prime position uh, to become leader later on. But from that moment on, he was a malcontent. We still got the wonderful speeches in the Commons. He was good to listen to, as was Powell, of course, Um, entertained a lot of us who had to spend our lives um, (laughs) reporting politics. But he was going to go nowhere. He stood a couple of times for the leadership after then and got totally derisory votes. In in in
1: 1988, he he challenged Kinnock, didn't he? He was absolutely crushed.
5: He did. And, and he later had a go, I think, against uh, Blair, which was just a nominal challenge. but um, And he got hardly any votes at all, but he enjoyed himself. And he was, in his way, he was he was quite like... I, 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 Hattersley is right in what he represented. He, <laughs> um, he wasn't liked by the, the leadership, but he was quite popular with MPs on both sides.
1: And that's, you know, we're seeing a common theme emerging here. It's people, once they... Look at top office, you know, um, Powell in 1965, then when 68, the leadership didn't fall into his lap after rivers of blood. You're looking at Ben, 76, 81, 88, they're not getting the top job. So they sort of start to plough their own furrow. They find an appreciative audience elsewhere. So let's stick with Labour then. There is another option, of course, rather than finding a niche in Westminster, becoming a backbench malcontent, you can just leave altogether. You'll remember Phil, Brian Gould, who was a bright young thing, uh, who lost out to John Smith in 1992. And then before long, he left for New Zealand and left British politics entirely, didn't he?
5: Yeah, well, he... Uh, strange case of Brian Gould. He, he born in New Zealand, came, came over here, got, his, got a first-class degree at uh, Oxford and then tried to take over the Labour Party. Um, and uh, he failed. He stood against um, John Smith in the 92 election, um, and uh, very soon afterwards, thought, well, I'll go back to New Zealand. <laughs> I failed in that bid to take over Britain. I'll go back to New Zealand. He became vice chancellor of the University of um, Waikato. Uh, I should add here, not many people know this, that Brian's brother, Wayne, is credited with popularizing Sudoku. I don't know if you know that,
1: uh, Patrick. I, you, know you know, what? what? I was it's very dimly aware Polish. of that. You've reminded you have reminded me of that. You know they they, they have he, you know he left a much more consequential mark on British British uh, public yeah, life and it. British papers than uh, than his brother uh, than his brother Brian did. But more famous still, on the subject of brothers, is David Miliband, of course. Because I think I can make a difference. I came into politics to make a difference, and now I'm leaving British politics to make a difference on the international level through a charity rather than through a government. That was David Miliband explaining why he quit. Uh, British politics quit Parliament in 2013. Phil, you were right in the thick of it during this period. Ed Miliband did want David Miliband on his front bench when he unexpectedly won the leadership. He wanted to make him shadow Chancellor, didn't he? But David said no. Was it obvious from the word go that David Miliband was going to leave politics? Was this just a case of David being unwilling to swallow his pride? Or obviously they had fundamental disagreements over how the Labour Party should work, but was there ever, as far as you could see it, covering this all from Westminster at the time, was it just a case of when, not if David was going to leave politics?
5: Oh, yeah, I think from the, from the moment. I mean, David thought he was going to win and he was overconfident. Um, and uh, those of us who sort of followed the criminal criminology of it all at the time, had David um, promised on the quiet that Ed Balls would have been his chancellor or shadow chancellor in opposition or government, I don't think Ed Miliband would have won. Uh, but he wouldn't do that he didn't want to make a deal with Ed Balls at that time Uh, Gordon Brown in the background was wanting didn't want David Miliband to win he wanted Ed Miliband to win despite uh, the fact that Ed Balls had worked for him all this time Mm. so when the result came and he he lost by a, a sliver there was no way that David could stay with Ed because He knew rightly that from day one, we would all have been writing stories and they would have been genuine, true stories about differences with his brother. So he hung about on the back benches for a couple of years and then went off to the um, International Rescue uh, Committee. And he stayed there for a long, long time. But he, in my opinion, was a great loss to the Labour Party at the time. I think he would have done better than his brother uh, at leading it. And uh, I think what the outcome in 2015 might well have been different if David had been leading the Labour Party. We'll never know that. But I, I understood his decision. It wasn't only pride. I think it was the, it was a knowledge that if he stayed on, uh, Ed's life would be impossible, and it would be very difficult for the Labour Party.
1: Yeah, he was in a uniquely invidious position, not only disagreeing with the course that the Labour Party was charting. But it, being his being his younger brother, that's a, t- a situation totally without parallel in British political history, isn't it? And so now we're looking at people who look at Westminster, look at the situation in their own parties, and think, you know, you might be Brian Gould and think, well, British politics has nothing left for me if I don't have the top job. You might be David Miliband looking at the situation, and thinking, well, this is a total nightmare. Or you might be Andy Burnham. I got very frustrated in Westminster. I fell out of love with the place. You know the way it works it kind of, I think it makes a fraud out of people in that it makes people say things they don't fully believe in. It makes them vote in ways they don't uh, kind of fully feel. And consequently, you know, people end up, I think, getting lost in the Westminster system. And that happened to me to some some degree. So when you come back to a role like this and you can kind of rediscover what you're all about and you, you don't give that up lightly. So Andy Burnham, of course, Phil, uh, ran for the Labour leadership twice in 2010, uh, Came a came a distant uh, came a distant fourth, uh, didn't he? And then, twenty fifteen, he was very much the favourite, but somehow lost to Jeremy Corbyn, and had an unhappy couple of years on Jeremy Corbyn's front bench. But then, twenty seventeen, was elected the mayor of Greater Manchester and has enjoyed this great late career renaissance as the so called king of the north. And it's interesting, Andy Burnham had a an escape route that other politicians before him didn't have, in that the devolution settlement gave him a big job, gave him a platform that he could then build an alternative power base rather than languishing on the backbenches or making unhappy compromises and serving under other Labour leaders, didn't he?
5: Yeah, Andy Andy did well in the end out of, out of failing in those two leadership elections. And I suppose most people would think he's done a, a solid job as, as Mayor of Manchester. Interestingly, of course, when um, Keir Starmer was um, facing a potential fine over, over party gate mm. matters, Um, There was talk then of bringing Andy back. Of course he couldn't come back in those circumstances because he wasn't an MP under under the rules that govern it, but he's one of those MPs, one of those leadership figures who'd gone off and made a much bigger name for himself by being out of Westminster. Uh, and there, I imagine his example will be followed by others. There, there, there are more, mere, more and more mayor elections now taking place, and I think that may be an escape route for a lot more politicians, Labour as well as Conservative, in the future. Who knows what will happen after this particular leadership election going on now?
1: And finally, just before we discuss the future, as you say, Phil, there is. Another option, apparently, we don't see this very often, and that's staying loyal, and that's what Rishi Sunak insists he's going to do, but we'll discuss that more in just a moment. Let's listen to one rebellious leader-in-waiting that perhaps the most famous of them all ultimately ended up.
2: I have been
5: asked to reply. Madam Deputy Speaker, this is an historic moment. May I welcome the Right Honourable Gentleman to his first Prime Minister's Questions. It's been a long time, but he's finally made it. I'm most grateful to the uh, right honourable gentleman for uh, his welcome to uh, my position at the dispatch box today.
1: Well, that, of course, is Michael Heseltine doing PMQs because he ended his frontline career as John Major's loyal deputy. Of course, he was partly constrained by health problems that ultimately meant he couldn't run again for the Tory leadership after unsuccessfully challenging Margaret Thatcher in 1990. He had a heart attack, of course. In The end, Phil, you know, he's a man of great, great, uh, thwarted ambition. But was he a, a, a good and faithful and loyal servant to John Major in the end?
5: He was. I mean, the the I, I appeared with Michael Heseltine on a, uh, another Times radio show just recently, and he he made the point there, which is quite right, that uh, he Douglas Hurd and Major had fought that 90 contest in a way. Uh, in a civilized way, in a friendly way, that meant that whoever won would have offered jobs to the other two. And that's precisely what happened. And um, he knew that he couldn't win at that point. The the next best for him was to take a place in the cabinet. He had a huge part in uh, getting rid of the the poll tax. Um, So he, he he left his mark um, and Major uh, cleverly, because by appointing him deputy, he was taking any possible uh, future rivalry out out of the way. And Heseltine enjoyed quite a few years in that role. And it was Major who had to, uh, of course, take the brunt of the 1970, 1997 slaughter at the at uh, the hands of Labour. So. Heseltine had a a bit uh, had a, he had a wonder. I remember going to interview him in this wonderful plush office he had as uh, as deputy prime minister, and I remember saying to him, "Well, you didn't do too badly, did you?" And he he laughed at that point. Um, so he his was a rather
1: classy way of of not getting the top job. Now let's also bring in Katie Balls from the Spectator. Morning, Katie. Morning. Now let's assume, as the polling is telling us that this is the case, and this is certainly the working assumption in both camps, uh, despite the spin, uh, that Rishi Sunak misses out by whatever margin next Monday. What are you hearing about what he's going to do?
4: So, uh, I think the big question which lots of MPs are asking is effectively, does he stay in the Commons? And if so, for how long? Now, I think it's clear from Rishi Sunak's comments that he would not have a quick exit. He would, I think, he would uh, definitely stay as an MP or at least, the current planners at the very least until the next election. I think if you speak to those close to Rishi Sunak, they'll say, "Oh no, 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 he'll he'll stay a long time, even after the next election." But lots of people say these things, and as we've just been hearing, um, when it comes to uh, the history of this, we know we just need to look at you know. David Cameron, uh, a few examples to see how people can change their minds. I think in terms of Rishi Sunak's personality, I I would be surprised if he is Liz Truss's biggest problem on the backbench. I think a, a blonde rival, Boris Johnson, is more likely <laughs> to be problematic in the sense that Rishi Sunak, is quite straight-laced in many ways and therefore has interventions but i can't quite see him right now at least having this you know power base where you you're trying to cause all these problems i think he will have principles and that could uh mean some rebellions and some issues but for example this idea that he would have voted down the budget i don't think that was ever going to happen because the fact that, that is a confidence matter and, and he does not want to do something which could be look as though you're blowing up a conservative government
1: yeah exactly whereas you know his uh his supporters are wondering aloud albeit off the record that they may end up voting against Liz Truss's tax cuts. But well, as you say, that's a huge step for any MP to take if they want to retain the, uh, the party whip. And also, we know he, that he's also said, I'm not going to serve in Cabinet, but that needn't necessarily mean that he's going to be causing lots of problems. It might just mean that he uh, sits on the back benches in the Commons occasionally, makes the occasional pointed intervention, but otherwise is, is very quiet. Just think, looking at Liz Truss's camp, Katie... What sort of role would she envisage for, for Rishi Sunak, given that you know, he's already essentially ruled himself out of the cabinet? Is the thinking in Truss's camp now, well, if he doesn't want to serve, we'll, we'll make a big show of sacking him?
4: I don't think be a big show of sacking him in the sense that I think there was relief in Trust Towers uh, when Rishi Sunak effectively said he he would not want to serve in her government it would be difficult Um, because I don't think Liz Trust particularly wants to have Rishi Sunak in her cabinet it's obviously convention that you are supposed to offer a job often a senior job I don't think it was ever going to be a great office of state Um, and I think now that he's said that that I, I'm not convinced that she will even offer him a job. I think to some, at least, around, I think this offers her a way out to say, well, he, he effectively already has said he doesn't want it, so therefore we don't need to focus on that. I think there are figures, though, who are mindful of the way of not to do these things with too much glee. Um, so you can have a scorched earth policy, and I think other figures likely who joined Rishi Sunak on the back benches would be Dominic Raab. Mm. The trust camp really saw red over the piece for The Times, where uh, Dominic Raab said her plans he likened them to, you know, an electoral suicide note. Um, so, so I think there is a sense that they don't want lots of these people in the in the cabinet, but uh, probably private celebrations and anonymous briefings rather than trying to do anything which is too directly linked to her, where she could be accused of you know, looking as though it was in bad taste when she was enjoying it.
1: Well, Phil, you'll obviously remember when Theresa May uh, sat with some glee, if we're using that word, Katie, uh, very, uh, very astutely puts her finger on. You know, Theresa May made a great show of sacking George Osborne and Michael Gove in her first day at number 10. And in the end, uh, she was humbled by the electorate in 2017. And Michael Gove uh, came knocking, or rather she came knocking and got Michael Gove to, to rescue him. So it's not always straightforward when uh, a, a winner sort of chooses to vanquish their, their rival, is it?
5: No, and I, uh, from Sunak's point of view, I think, uh, I think Katie's dead right. He'll, he'll, he's cleverer than that. And he's, he's young enough to have a, another go. So in my opinion, and that of Conservative MPs I've spoken to recently, they think he would be wise to wait and see to possibly make a decision. If Trust is able to turn everything around and look certain to win the election in 2004, I'm sure that you would see Sunak standing down just before the election. Now, we don't think that's very likely. He's He's certainly can afford to wait until after that election, get himself re-elected if there's a leadership election at that point. People may judge him on the way uh, Truss has handled matters in the two years before the election and on the way he's behaved. So yes, he'll make speeches which will show that he's uh, out of line probably with the trust leadership, but he won't be I wouldn't have thought he would be hugely rebellious. I wouldn't see any gain for, for him in that. Probably his problem has been that he looked too keen this time round. It, it got out too often that mm. uh, he was sort of making preparations to go for the leadership whenever the opportunity came. Uh, and then, you know, he, got, he was the one who got blamed for the uh, departure of Boris Johnson when a hell of a lot more other MPs wanted him to go as well. So he may have learnt from the experience. We may see a, a soon 2nd coming. Who knows?
1: Just before I let you both go, Katie, you know Liz Truss. You know Liz Truss well. You know what's what she's thinking. And, it's, of course, it's not over yet. Who knows? There might be a shock come next Monday. And Liz Truss is very keen to avoid looking complacent and look like... Uh, looking like she assumes she's got all this in the bag, despite the extensive preparations for government that are going on. Should Liz Trust lose, Katie, if the unlikely happens? What do you think uh, her backbench career would look like?
4: Uh, I'm not sure she'd be as well behaved as Rishi Sunak. I think there's also a question in the sense that I imagine she'd be more vocal from the Mm. backbenchers. There's also a question there, which is Rishi Sunak... I think, would offer Liz Truss a job. That has been the suggestion. So at that point, does she accept it? Uh, she she ultimately has been very critical of Rishi's Next plans, but she hasn't said they are an electoral suicide note. Um, so, so, so you can perhaps imagine a role where she stays in Cabinet but creates a power base. Um, I, I wouldn't completely rule that out. Plenty um, more fizz with s- Liz. E- exactly. Um, and, you know, waits to see because I think, if, if there was a big shock in the polling, you, you'd still imagine it would be, you know, Richie, C Campbell. next so if we win, we win on 51%. Um, so I think it'd be close enough that it, it would all feel very unsettled and should probably think, I just hang around and I can have a second go at this.
1: Well, that's all from me on the podcast today. Matt's back tomorrow with a cracking show. He'll be speaking to Nick Thomas-Simmons about his new biography of Harold Wilson. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your pods from.